Principal Sunday when he's here on the second. Um, okay, without further ado, let's talk about uh, the Bible here. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open, open them up to Luke 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it will pop up on the screen behind us. Um, and before we get to this, um, Lee, I'm going to make you work extra hard, ask you to work extra hard back there. Will you go back to that fear? Um, what's the song, Jeremy, about fear? Yes, um, nothing to fear. This was really impactful to me. Anybody else this morning? Um, it's just the idea of the fears that we carry, uh, just to be able to name, though, name that this is a struggle that we have, uh, that there are things that we fear. Though there is nothing to fear in light of who God is, uh, raise your hand if this is a struggle to let go of that. Uh, so you are not alone, and it was just so... I just wanted to name how incredibly um, I don't know, ministering to me, impactful it was for me, and hopefully for you all, to hear the church proclaim a truth to our hearts together. Uh, so know that if you're in this room and you walked in this morning uh, with concerns or fears or worries, things that have kept you awake at night, things where you've woken up in the morning and your mouth has hurt uh, because you've kind of been grinding your teeth because you have things that you are concerned about, know that you're not alone. I uh, know that the words of Scripture ring true for you today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, uh, that was free. Uh, so now we're going on to the actual sermon here. All right, Luke 15. We're just going to read the first seven verses here in Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. For the Pharisees and the teachers, of the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Let's say that again. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the wisdom of our Savior. We acknowledge and lay claim to the truth that we submit under the authority of Scripture. We don't come to the Bible and mold it to our lives and our thoughts and what we want to be true, but we ask instead that we come to the Scripture and that you would mold our knowledge, our lives, our convictions to the truth of Scripture. Father, where we need to be corrected today, correct us. Where we need to be reminded of truths we have forgotten, remind us this morning. Father, I pray for our church and pray that you would continue to grow us in to be a healthier and healthier body of Jesus. That we would love each other well that we'd serve one another, that we would look like the church in Acts 2, that we would see the needs of those around us and be willing to sacrifice what we have to care for the body well. Father, I pray that You would be with those who are hurting, whether it's financially or relationally or with their health. I pray that Your kingdom would come. I pray for our neighborhoods represented in this room. I pray 
for peace where there's been turmoil, where there's been violence in our city in these last few weeks and months where there's been violence in our neighborhoods. Father, I pray that You would provide peace. I pray for those that are are working in our city, whether that is the, the mental health counselors, whether that is officers, whether that is the other public servants. Father, may You give them wisdom. May You give them Uh, humility, give them integrity, and continue to bring about your kingdom in our city. And Father, may we be lights in this city, as a church and as individuals. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. When I was a teenager, my parents, uh, our whole family, uh, went on a trip up to the mountains somewhere in North Georgia. Uh, I think it's someplace called Sky Valley. Uh, I have no idea where it is. Somewhere in North Georgia. But what I do remember was we had a lot of free time, and my grandparents were with me, and my grandma, who, in case you didn't realize I was from the South, is called Mama, um, and so Mama and Papa, um, and so Mama was up there, and we had a lot of free time that weekend. At some point, uh, ended up with just my older brother and I, we were probably 15 and 17, in the house with Mama. And we had kind of gotten bored at that point, we're ready to go do something. We convinced Mama that we should go for a hike. This would have been Mama's inaugural hike. I mean, Mama was probably 75 years old, had never hiked a day in her life, uh, spent most of her time playing cards, reading, was just a wonderful grandma, but not your outdoorsy kind of granola-y lady. And I will never forget being out in, you know, the, the, the woods, the wilderness behind this cabin and just being utterly lost. Like we had taken this sweet little, I mean, Mama, if you have been watching the news um, and, have, you know, I've, I've seen all the pictures of the Queen of England, like that lady looks exactly like my Mama did. She, Mama was about five foot one, like slowly getting shorter as time went on. She was in her mid-70s at this point. She's passed since a few years ago. But we were out in the woods and got so far lost that we did not even know which way to go. And it is a terrible feeling to be lost. It is less terrible when you're with your brother because he's older and you can kind of shift the blame onto him. But it's incredibly awful to be lost and be responsible for the matriarch of the family. Like, they were sad that I was gone. They were incredibly sad that Mama was gone. And, my, and so when we first, I will never forget the feeling of when somebody, I don't remember who it was, probably my mom or my dad or somebody, found us out there, just the feeling of utter relief that we had. Have you ever also been on the flip side of that and been missing something for so long, and you know, whether it's your wallet or your keys or something valuable that you've had, and then found that thing that you are missing? Both of these feelings, either being lost and being found, or losing something and finding it, these are like top ten feelings of all time. These are things that we, you just are like, oh, what a relief that it is. You probably have your own stories like that, but right here we have Jesus telling a story, what is called a parable in Scripture, and what he's doing with these parables is he's connecting a theological truth, something that is true since the beginning of time, will be true for forever and ever, with an experience, and that experience produces feelings. What we're seeing here is that he's connecting a truth with our emotions to help us understand, help that truth sink in more and more. This simple story is given to us to make an incredibly profound point that though impactful for all of eternity, is something we struggle to let sink in 
and probably will for the rest of our lives. The simple truth from this passage is that we are miserably wayward sinners, yet incredibly valuable to God. So let's start with where this story starts. There are two groups of people, and Jesus is eating with them, with one of them, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now these dudes, these are, are sinners, and they, they know it, but then there's another group of people uh, that are kind of muttering to themselves. I love that word being used. That they, the, the teacher of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. These are the super religious dudes of the day, and they think that they are better than Jesus, certainly think they're better than the tax collectors and the sinners, so they're ready to kind of judge their and his every move. And in some ways, they aren't wrong. The tax collectors in this group, these are kind of the the worst of the worst people of the time. And I love that they even pair them up as like the tax collectors and sinners. Like when somebody calls a group of people sinners, we know that they're bad. On top of that, they're like, these people aren't just sinners. They're tax collectors. Really, really bad. The type of folks that would steal your life savings if you lived in that time. Your retirement, repo your car, foreclose on your house, give some to their bosses in Rome, and then shave the rest off for their own bank accounts. Everybody in society knew that tax collectors were crooked people, corrupt and very wealthy off of the the theft that they committed towards other people. Not only this, they were despised, even by their own families, They were disowned at times. And worse than that, if they were to even go to the synagogue, kind of the the church of the time, uh, back in the Old Testament, and they wanted to tithe, the church wouldn't even take their money. You know you're a sinner when the church ain't going to take your money. Let's just be honest here. We look at these people and we have an idea of them, but what is going on here is that they're not only bad, they are the people who are committing injustice, And the whole world knows it. So imagine the uproar. Tax collectors are the the scum of society and they're eating with Jesus. I tried to get my head around this. Like if you saw a leader of a church or a leader of, you know, in our diocese having having a meal. I didn't want to connect somebody from today's world to tax collectors. But with tax collectors of the day, they would be looked down upon. Social media blasted left. And right. Well, this group, these tax collectors and sinners, they're welcomed by our Savior. Not only does He say, You have a spot in the kingdom if you put your faith in Me, He has a meal with them. Never turns away from them. Always makes time for them. He asks for a drink of water from people, from the well, from people that are in this category of sinners, sin, uh, the, the kind of the, sin, the most sinful of the sinners enters their home for dinner, heals a variety of their illnesses we see in the Gospel text. But Jesus' patience with this group angers the other group. This group is always welcomed by Jesus as well, the, the, the Pharisees, but they don't really care for Jesus. To them, He's a nuisance. Receives sinners. Eats with them intentionally gets into the nitty-gritty of their presence, taking upon himself kind of their growth, their societal grossness. But what they don't see is that same Jesus who eats with sinners is the one that talks with the Pharisees. 
He comes into their space. He enters their world and calls them all equally to repent and believe. However, only one of those groups seems to receive Jesus. So this story is for them. Jesus is explaining this parable of the lost sheep for the tax collectors and sinners. And he's also explaining it to us because he understands, he sees with his mind's eye, these guys don't get it. They don't understand the kingdom of God that I'm trying to explain. And that he wants them and us to have a healthier view of what it is, what is the kingdom of God that he's proclaiming and inviting people into. So what does he do? He tells them a story about shepherd and sheep. So this shepherd has a hundred sheep and one decides to run off, kind of peace out from the group. And what do we see here? And first and foremost, what I want you to see is that shepherd is the Jesus figure in the story. And we see the gracious heart of our Savior. By standards of this day, if this guy, this shepherd, this dude has a hundred sheep, he would be kind of in the wealthier income bracket of shepherds. So he probably had a bunch of folks that were willing to work for him, that were paid employees. And so this shepherd, if he lost a sheep, the standard of the day would be he just sends somebody out to go get him, to go get that sheep. But what does the shepherd in this story do? He's willing to search, search for that lost sheep himself. And this is the same truth that Jesus wants us to understand about him as our shepherd. That one by one, he will come after his sheep, his lost sheep, until they're all tucked in as safe members of God's eternal family. And then what does that kind shepherd do after the sheep comes home, after he carries him back? What does he do? He throws a heavenly party. He rejoices. He invites all his friends over. And that is exactly like the God that we serve when one of his people is brought home. It seems excessive, but this is the love of our Father. Excessive, lavish, extravagant. It doesn't even make sense to our human brains. If I'm that shepherd, if I have spent my whole afternoon, maybe even multiple days tracking down this sheep, I'll tell you what I'm not doing is having feelings of excitement and lavishness over this animal. But that's our Savior. So then shifting gears, that describes the shepherds, but what about the sheep? You'll see a picture up on the slide, up on the slide here. And I want to just recognize here that we got some bad news coming. So just brace yourself like it's a sweet story about the shepherd We've got some bad news about the us figures in this story. Sheep for us, city folks that live in Atlanta, and, and we have an understanding of sheep as these like cute little animals in movies. One of my daughters, one of her stuffed animals was this baby sheep that we love, this baby lamb we love. We picture them as just kind of super soft, cuddly, wonderful little animals. We even count them when we get tired. I don't know how that started, but that's a thing we do. But here's the thing about sheep. They are not the cute, sweet friendly animals that we think they are. Hey, first of all, they just smell horrible. They're dirty. They can't clean themselves. They wander off into the abyss. If you leave a sheep on their own, they are just off on their own making a mess of their life. And basically all a sheep does is eat. They keep their head down 
looking at the grass, walking and eating, walking and eating, completely oblivious to the world. And oftentimes they get separated from the flock and they wander off. When I was researching this, I came across this incredible video, and Leah's going to pop it up. This is, this, this is what a sheep, kind of a typical moment in a sheep's life right here. Homeboy's trying to help the sheep get out of a crack that the sheep's got himself into. Works so hard to pull him out. I love how he's doing this in slides. Sheep pops out. Oh, I'm free. This is wonderful. Hey, hey <laughs> Right back in the crack. Uh, we're going to see this in slow-mo here in a second. This whole thing again. Here he goes. This dude's like, what am I supposed to do now? You just are right back. Here we go. One, two. I can make it. I can make it. Right in the hole. Brothers and sisters, Jesus could have described us as lions, as tigers. What does he do? He describes us as that right there. It's a sad reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. A shepherd, I was researching a shepherd, he describes a sheep as just a, as a, we're not allowed to say this word in our household, but I'll say it in church, as a stupid animal. Lose this directions continually. This is a shepherd talking. Even when you find the lost sheep, it will run away from you, as we just saw. So if you find a lost sheep, you have to grab it, tie it up, and take it home. Brothers and sisters, if that is us, then the truth we take from that is that we desperately need help. We need to be rescued. We wander away. We stray. We get ourselves in trouble. We're beaten up. We're dirty. We're bloody battered and bleeding, totally lost at times, we can become alone, terrified, and afraid because we stray from our Master. That Jesus who's our Good Shepherd, the Jesus who seeks us, who finds us, who saves us, who brings us home. So what he's saying here is that Jesus is saying that the sheep not only stray, but we see a picture of the Gospel here that we don't even do anything to contribute to ourselves being found, guys. He comes after us. He finds us in our lostness. So we see a, a picture of a shepherd holding a sheep here. And there's a pastor guy named Pastor Mason that I really love. And he, and he says it like this. He says, so Jesus leaves heaven on a mission to find his sheep. He wanders for days through darkness and trouble to find you. He finds you and I beaten up, broken, bleeding, and alone. He picks you up and carries you on his back, on his shoulders with his own strength. He carries your sin on the cross. Literally, the picture here is your sin on His shoulders bringing you back to God to live with Him in community with Him. Church, the visual of the shepherd holding that sheep is not just that He's carrying us. He's carrying all the weight of our sin. All the punishment that we deserve. He bore it on that cross. When He carried that cross, carried His own cross, and then carried all of our sins when he was nailed to it. At the Romans Bible study this week, I, I sat in for Leon when he was at Pastor Mac when he was out of town, and we covered Romans 3, and it was an incredibly sobering passage and a wonderful discussion. In there, Paul writes, There's no one righteous, not even one. Paul taking a, a, a page out of Jesus' book of very, being very confrontational with truth. No one righteous. Not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. These are words that are simply uncomfortable to hear. But as Christians, this is the sobering reality that we know is true. 
And it's what leads us to confession every week. But simply, there's a standard for how to live life. We see it spelled out throughout the Bible, and we simply do not live up to it. We're called to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we're honest, church, 90% of the time, we, don't, we not only don't love them, we don't even think about them. We're called to hold loosely to the treasures of this world, but if you did a, a Google search history on any of us, it would reveal all the many things we coveted this week. Maybe even this morning. But Jesus doesn't compare us to sheep to shame us. Paul doesn't write those words in Romans 3 to heap condemnation and guilt upon us. No, being honest about our sinfulness, being honest about talking about this, though it's hard and prickly, it's for our good and for our freedom. The reality is we are sinful whether we want to talk about it or not. But naming it frees us up to deal with it, both in the sense of our forgiveness with Christ, but also in dealing with it, it has the, the, dealing with the impacts that sin has on us. As you get older, hopefully you're going to make that you're making those annual visits to the doctor for your checkups or whatever it is that we kind of as we transition into our older years here, uh, transition to go to those trips to the doctor. And when I go to the doctor for an annual physical. I go in there and they take my blood uh, and, you know, do all the tests on it, whatever they do, ask me a question, they fill out the chart. And the reality is that that doctor, and we have a ton of medical folks in this room, that doctor or the nurse, whoever is kind of working with me that day, has a responsibility that if something is wrong with me, to let me know what's wrong. Like if the doctor, if he gets tests, he or she gets test work, or blood tests back, uh, for, from the, you know, the labs and there's something that's you know, off, whether it's with my cholesterol or with uh, something with my heart or something else even worse than that or more, more troubling than that. And he or she looks at me and says, well, I don't want to ruin his day by telling him about this. Like he seems like he was in such a jolly mood when he was in the office. He had plans you know, for the coming weeks and he seems like life is going so I don't want to, I don't want to mess up his schedule by talking about these things that are wrong with him, we would all look at them and say, what in the world are you doing? But so often we do that same thing when we're scared to talk about sin because it makes people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable sometimes even as a pastor. But it's, if we don't talk about this, we're neglecting to truly love each other well. I've been on airplanes before where we are all loaded up, ready to go, and it seems like, gosh, this is taking a little bit longer to kind of like, you know, shuttle over to the runway like we're supposed to, and, and you know, we all know what's coming. There's an announcement that comes over the loudspeakers, and the, the pilot or, or one of the flight attendants will say, uh, we've got some engine issues, and we're going to have to kind of deplane everybody, get off the plane, and fix whatever's going on, or get on a different plane, and the response to that is always in just an incredible picture of society. Just the like, oh, I what in the world? Like, just get on with the flight. I am sitting there going like, get me off this plane. Like, if you have told me that this plane, and, and let's be honest here, there's one person I know in this room who is a uh, pilot. He's the only one that knows 
how these things even get off the ground, much less stay 30,000 feet in the air. This is a great picture of somebody of, uh, of a kind of a plane of like how it works, and you got all those kind of like wind um, kind of uh, scribbles, and it just says magic under all of it. Like nobody knows how this works. Like we just know we're 30,000 feet in the air, then all of a sudden we come back down, they tell us to buckle up, like that's helping anybody in a crash to have your seatbelt on. And then, but then when we, they say, oh, we don't feel like the plane is in good enough shape for us to go up in the air, we have a cow in that plane. But what does that tell us? It tells us we would rather just not know. Just send us on up. We're fine. And when we think about that with this passage, like, yes, Jesus could, you know, he could, he could look at us and say, oh, you guys are not that bad. Like, oh, yeah, you know, I have to die on the cross for some reason. Not sure why. Maybe it's for something else. He could look at us and say that, or he could look at us and explain, like, you guys are straying so far. You are willingly walking away from the shepherd that loves you dearly. And when we understand that reality, we're so much more ready and willing to say, gosh, what do we do to come back home? What do we do to come back into a relationship? What do repentance look like? And the reality is that the gospel, this is where it gets so good, because being honest about our sin, though hard, sobering, challenging, fill in whatever words you want to there, it does absolutely nothing to diminish our value to God. We are miserably wayward sinners, yet incredibly valuable to God. He looks at that sheep, leaves, every, leaves the 99, come, goes after it, and probably has to hike over you know, whatever terrain that sheep has gotten himself into or herself into, but he loves that sheep enough he's willing to do anything and everything to go after it. And when we believe this, Church, I promise you it will transform us as individuals and as a church community. If you think about what Jesus was doing in this passage, in this story, he was having a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Something done between friends, community members. Jesus was modeling for us. The gospel can transform our understanding of what friendship and community looks like. He's been teaching us the last three Sundays. We had the story of you know, hospitality uh, two Sundays ago. We talked about uh, Philemon and Onesimus and Paul last week and now this. In the world today, uh, you know, if we think about the, the issues looking outside of the church and sometimes inside the church, the world is incredibly polarized incredibly polarized, whether it's politics or socioeconomic differences or culture or ethnicity, people live and work in remarkably siloed experiences. And brothers and sisters, what we see from Jesus, his willingness to eat with folks that would have been the scum of society, we realize that we are called to be in community not with people who are just like us culturally or just like us socioeconomically, but we're called to be in community with people who, also, who are sinners, yet understand how loved and accepted they are by Jesus. I've been in Atlanta almost my whole life. I've lived in the city since 2005. I know the city probably as well as probably most people my age. And I was talking to one of my closest friends a few weeks ago, and I, come, I came to the conclusion that although I love this city, I love it so much, I truly feel like there's nowhere in this city, I thought about all aspects of the city, truly nowhere in this city that I truly feel at home in. And I got kind of bummed about it. I was like, I don't feel cool enough to live on the east side of Atlanta. 
I don't have cool enough clothes to live kind of in, you know, the, the north part of, the, of Atlanta. On the west side, I don't always culturally fit in super well. And whatever that even means for me, I feel like I'm still longing. Wherever I am, I'm like, I, I kind of fit in here, but I don't fully fit in. And I think what I'm longing for, even when I go to all parts of the city, is an experience that I feel when I'm in community with other Christians. There's a diversity of people that are not at every church, but that I get to experience in my Christian community. Yet these people that are walking alongside each other, though different, understand how loved and known they are in the gospel. And they offer that to other people. And I want to acknowledge that even at Redeemer, we don't do this perfectly. I want to acknowledge that some of you have experienced deep, deep wounds and hurt from, from Christian communities. So I do not want to um, kind of ignore that at all. I know that's a part of so many of our stories. But I also want to, to see the vision that Jesus has for us and see the opportunity that we have at Redeemer to live this out. I got to experience on Wednesday night, and sitting in for Leon at Bible study, the, 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 that circle of folks are coming from all, or it's like a U, because I'll call it a circle, uh, but that U of folks coming from all different church backgrounds, all different ethnicities, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, probably educational differences. But I heard profound point after profound point coming from different folks around that circle. And I thought to myself, looking back as I read this passage, I was like, that's a taste of the community that God's calling us to. I feel it during our staff meetings, our, our leadership meetings. I feel it when I was at a birthday party a month and a half ago playing volleyball with a bunch of church folks. Uh, and I was like, this, there's something beautiful about even the recreation that I get to experience with people that know and love, know and understand the love of Jesus and are willing to offer that. And I, say, I know it doesn't happen perfectly, but I want us to recognize that it is alive in this church and I want us to recognize that we're called to continue to welcome people in. So how do we do that? How do we get there? We've tasted this. How do we get more? I think that it goes, but it goes without saying that first and foremost, we admit both individually and corporately that we are sinners. And we admit and proclaim corporately and individually that God finds immense pleasure in us as being children of His through our faith in Christ. If you are those two things, if you are a sinner, can admit you're a sinner and can lean in that you are loved by the Lord, you have got a place at the table here. So we'll even say it with us. Say, I'm a sinner, but God finds immense, immense pleasure in me being a child of His through faith in Christ. That's it. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to struggle with the right sins. You don't have to have this bank account. You don't have to give this amount of money. You don't have to serve this amount of time. If you can claim those things, you have a seat at the table and it's our job to welcome you in. So what does this mean? How does this look? It means that if we can live out and understand that our primary identity is this, that we are sinners saved by grace, yet incredibly valuable to God, we have an opportunity to love each other and create this community. That Romans 3 passage, Paul speaks those strong words. He's doing that in response to the Jewish and the Gentile people not getting along well at all. So what does he do? He, puts the, he levels the ground and says, you know, Jews, you think that you're better than Gentiles in this way, but actually the ground is completely level. Romans 3, 23-24 says, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God and are all justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So how did Paul want them to connect with each other? By helping them to see they share a need for a Savior as well as they share a gift of a Savior. And the second thing, the way this impacts us is that we are free then to grow in holiness and love your neighbor. Comparing these two groups, Pharisees and tax collectors, who do you think left this little shindig more ready to love people? My money is on those tax collectors. And why do they leave ready to love somebody else? Because they know how much they've been loved. We as people, when we understand how much we've been loved, we are free to go love our neighbors well. And this is not a ticket to heaven. Our salvation is not simply, oh, we've punched our ticket and we have a spot in the kingdom forever. It is that. You have a home for eternity with God, but you are changed in the here and now and called to live out that love to the world around us. The Gospel proclaims that we are forgiven And that same gospel says that we know our value in Christ and that leads us to tell us that we are free to go love our neighbor, fight against societal ills, and be a light to the world around us. So I'll close by saying this as we head towards the communion table. Julie, if you don't mind coming up. As we head towards the communion table, everything leads up to this. In the Anglican Church, one of the things that I, one of the, one of the parts of my job I love is people are coming into our church for the first time, and they usually have questions, as everybody does, but they often have questions about Anglicanism. And we will explain all the different things about Anglicanism that um, you know we think are valuable and important. But one of the things that is unique about how we do church is that the center of the climax of a Sunday morning is not Leon or I talking to you. It's not the worship, although we love the worship. The climax of a Sunday morning is what we are about to do, what Leon, Pastor Max is about to do, and lead us in our Eucharist meal at the communion table. We come together on a Sunday and proclaim the gospel that I preach to you, that we, have, we, are, we are miserable, wayward sinners, yet we are invited again to the table. So when we come forth on a Sunday morning, we, we, we worship, we sing with our voices, we, we respond in the liturgy, But in an incredibly impactful way, we taste the forgiveness of God. So that's the invitation today. The invitation is to taste of that forgiveness and then go forth from here, having been changed again by the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the beauty of the gospel. That though we are wayward because of sin, Christ comes after us welcomes us in, carries us back to the flock, and offers forgiveness time and time again. Father, may that change us, continue to change us and sanctify us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.